Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Fitness Stuff for Normal People podcast. This is Tony over here, the one speaking. Mariana on my right. Now, it's no secret the fitness industry sucks. Whether it's the corrupt multi-billion dollar supplement and weight loss industry or the endless supply of influencers who will promote anything in order to drive page views, clicks, and referral links. The bottom line is we're not trying just to provide another fitness podcast, but completely change the fitness industry for the better by providing you with the knowledge and tools to give you confidence in applying the best possible training and nutrition into your own life. Today, we have a special guest in my heart, Mr. Joe Stanek. He's been my strength coach for the last 10 months. And at the time of this recording, it is two days before my bench PR that we've been working on for those last 10 months. I'm going for 405 on bench for the first time. So if the time this comes out after the new year and I'm no longer following Joe on Instagram, you know it did not go well. So we got him on the podcast today, but Joe is not just my coach. This guy has some incredible accolades. So technically he is a powerlifting coach and a dang good one at that. He is the owner of Game Day Barbell, a gym that just opened up in this past year over in southeast of Austin, Texas, right by the airport, if you ever want to check that out. He is also a strength and powerlifting coach, coaching some of the best athletes in powerlifting, ranked beginners all the way up to world champions in several different leagues across the nation and globes. I know he was just telling us about his client in South Korea who just broke multiple world records in multiple different weight classes on one single day. Absolutely insane. So as far as strength goes and getting strong, he is your freaking guy. So today we're diving deeper into specifically the difference between training for strength, training for size, how they overlap, how to implement some more nitty gritty strength techniques if you want to get stronger, and especially on the big three, your squat, your bench, your deads, and the regressions of those if you're not quite there yet. I think this one's going to especially be helpful for coaches in the field and people who are really looking to take it to a next level because who doesn't want their body to be capable and strong AF. Before we jump in there real quick, as always, we're going to keep talking about it to the end of time because we were pumped about it. Thank you all for the five-star reviews on Spotify. We just crossed 1,000. Right? <laughs> 5,000 on Spotify. We've been talking about it forever. Thank you all for doing that. It really does spread and push our content to other people the best, especially with what we just learned over the new year. This was all due to you guys, and especially in these reviews. We were ranked as one of the top 1% most shared podcasts globally in the year 2022, along with several other accolades, like reaching the top 20 on Spotify charts. So it absolutely blew our mind, but these reviews are so freaking important. So thank you guys for taking the seconds as you're listening to this intro to go do. Quick two notes before we jump in. Marianne's going to hit our sponsor. Other note is our Fitness Stuff Premium. If you like the research aspect that we bring into each and every episode, make sure that you're not missing out on the premium side with the Fitness Stuff Research Review. Mariana and I designed our own research review where we dive even deeper into the latest research, pulling up and actually writing out presentations, visuals, walking you through the deeper sides of these studies so you can not only implement them into your own life, but learn and better understand moving forward with confidence. It's also half off through the new year. So I think five bucks for your first month to check it out. You also get those sick deals, partners with exclusive members like Merrick and examine.com and more to come. All that in the show notes below if you want to join. Also, if you are looking for a last minute 
gift or late gift, I guess it would be for the holidays for a loved one, a friend, a fellow gym rat, Legion Athletics, the sponsor of this podcast. Great option. We have used Legion for quite some time now. I think Tony even longer than myself. And we love them for a variety of reasons, not just their delicious protein powder and pre-workout, but (laughs) they work with an entire scientific review board. Every article, podcast, video they produce is vetted by a team of MDs, PhDs, and other professionals. They also fund scientific research into nutrition, exercise, and supplementation to help advance our collective understanding of how to live fitter, healthier lives. So Definitely go check them out. We have the link in our show notes below. You can type in FSPod at checkout for 20% off your first order or double points on every order after that. Seriously, especially with how much we've been talking about the supplement industry in the last few episodes. <laughs> Getting safe, trusted supplements, not an easy task. So if you love no. someone, make sure you do it right. Everybody, this is Joe Stanick. So for everyone listening to know, Joe has been my coach for almost a year, Basically, nine, 10 months, yeah. where I really wanted to shift into strength training and build specifically my bench press. So he's been my coach for a long, long time. We've been working towards a PR on bench of 405. I think my estimated one rep max was around like 370 when we first started almost a year ago. And now it's at around 405, 410. Haven't actually done it yet. I'm trying in two days. So today we're going to be talking about with the master himself, Joe, how to get strong AF. So we're going to jump into it. But give Mm -hmm. the people a cliff note version of what you do. I'm Joe Stanek. I am a lot of things, predominantly a powerlifting coach, work with all kinds of levels of powerlifters from rank novices all the way up to world record holders. I have been doing that since 2016. That's kind of been my main gig. As of recently, though, I became the CEO of a hybrid uh, in-person online business, Game Day Barbell, which is a combination of a physical gym location here in Austin, Texas. And we also do online coaching for all types of fitness, again, mainly powerlifters, but we have a little bit of everything. And we also run apparel and we actually have training programs that we're releasing here very, very soon. Lots of other oh, cool yeah. stuff on the horizon. And then we also host powerlifting events around the United States. Our next one is going to be in Sacramento. And we're doing that in collaboration okay. with Silent Mike, who you may or yeah. may not know. Big, big name in the fitness industry. But yeah, that's what I that's what I do. All right. Me and Mariana, we're gonna try and get up to speed for the competition in Sacramento. We'll see if we can make it there. <laughs> Set a couple cool. PRs like your other. Watch athletes. out. I'll take bench, Marion. What, what you got? You got squat or deads? Deadlift. Okay, so that's mm-hmm. always the do. right answer. We can team compete, right? <laughs> We're pitching it to you right now. The first ever <laughs> <laughs> male and female combo powerlifting competition. Uh, we have a way to compare strength across like the sexes and the weight classes. There's different coefficients that are used. The one we use in USA powerlifting is called the dots formula. So, not impossible. Yeah, Tony doesn't have a chance against me. There's no comparison. Zero chance. Just so much stronger that it's just not even, it's not going to work. I can't compete. (laughs) I can't compete. (laughs) But why I was excited to do this episode, because we've had, this is our 51st episode. We just had 50. And we haven't talked about specifically strength training on its own for a full episode. So I was super excited to talk about it, not just because so many people have been interested in it, but with how much I've learned just in working with you over the past almost year Because that's why I think I told you when I first reached out to you, I've been a big fan of having a separate coach in any aspect of my life, whether it's mentorship or through training. And I've only had more like hypertrophy or aesthetic coaches before. And I really wanted to learn the differences in programming for strength. Because obviously, and you are going to speak to this probably better than I can, 
they translate so well to each other where I've learned so much about programming for strength that translates over to hypertrophy, to aesthetic, to so many clients that we work with that it's crazy that I just didn't know this big piece of it. So I want to start by giving an outline because I think people know like training for size, training for strength aren't the exact same thing, mm -hmm. but could you break down where they overlap and how they're different? For sure. I think as far as overlapping between training for strength and training for hypertrophy, we're generally trying to get in a specific amount of training volume each week, definitely similar amounts across the various lifts that you do. But the way that I would actually describe it is it's just hyper-specific, right? So whereas in bodybuilding, you're trying to do a variety of exercises to potentially get more out of the muscle that you're trying to grow, powerlifting is just very specific in that you're trying to get three specific exercises strong. And that could be the case with any lift that you actually want to get strong at, right? Like strength yeah. is specific and that's the big difference between them. Strength isn't just, oh, I have a lot of muscle around this area that is supposed to help me lift the weight in this way. You actually have to be good at the skill. It's a little bit closer to like an actual athletic event. If Shaquille O'Neal needs to be better at free throws, Lord knows he needed to be. He does more of them, or at least he should. In the case of strength training and you know my, my version of that, which of course is powerlifting, you just you specifically look to practice that lift over and over to get better at it. Yeah. And that's one thing that I think I didn't fully grasp until working with you is because people want to get stronger on usually whatever they're starting to good. Like I know a lot of people just beginning love the leg press because that's usually one of like, it's where their biggest muscle group can really excel. And it's in like a more guided plane. A lot of people want to kind of go past there because powerlifting, the three exercises you mentioned, bench, deadlift, squat, mm -hmm. you can have a regression of any of those, right? To any point, right? The leg press being an extreme regression of like a squat, yeah. for example. So when people are looking at training for size or training for strength, like you said, it's a little bit more of a skill. Does size always translate to how much weight you can lift? I.e. like the more muscle I have, the heavier I can lift on whatever movement. Yeah, I would say yes, but with a caveat, right? Just as an easy way to understand this. If you look at all of the best power lifters in each weight class, they're generally going to look like bodybuilders that are in the off season, right? They're going to look very muscular and they're going to be lifting a lot of weight. Having more muscle usually means that you're going to be stronger. Now that said, if you were to take somebody, just as an example, like let's say you took Chris Bumstead and yeah. had him jump into a powerlifting meet, right? He's probably right. going to do pretty darn well, but if you were to give Chris Bumstead a 10 week powerlifting program and him train like a powerlifter and do the squat bench press and deadlift multiple times per week before that, he would be that much stronger because he already has that muscular base and then he can improve neurologically as far as his efficiency with moving weight. So yeah, more muscle is usually going to equal more strength, but what we want is a combination of the two. We want more practice with those lifts in combination with having a good muscular base. So almost more, like more muscles, more potential for strength. You've probably seen bigger people in the gym, not lift as much as you probably see this with your athletes a lot. Like, so I see some of the guys on your story sometimes who look physically like smaller and are deadlifting like 700 pounds. That just blows my freaking mind. Yeah. It kind yeah. of scares me a little bit. It's interesting because the other thing that comes into play is leverage. A lot of these guys that you, if we use the deadlift, for example, a lot of these guys that we see moving a lot of weight and are 
smaller in stature, a lot of the times they're just very, they're built very well for it. To be a good deadlifter, you typically need a shorter torso, which keeps the distance of the hips from the barbell shorter. And then you also want long arms because that makes the actual distance from the beginning point to lock out that much smaller. It is also sort of a game of leverages too. Again, in the opposite effect, if you have a very long torso and short upper legs, you're probably going to be a very efficient squatter. You're going to be able to mm. stay very upright. You're going to be able to just move that barbell from point A to point B that much easier. But again, if you have more muscle around those levers, you're going to be able to move more. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. I feel like from like also if you get someone who's not a power lifter, but maybe they've been training in the gym for a while. I see this with my more advanced clients. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we have to shift that mindset of looking for size in terms of their progress, because there are so many ways you could advance in terms of strength, but that might not be reciprocated in the mirror or where you're looking at your actual biceps. And I feel like that is something that a lot of people, especially with you have social media and you're constantly comparing yourself and thinking about physique as a marker for progress, but that cannot overlook strength, especially when you are at the more advanced level, even if you're not powerlifting. So I feel like that's something that it's tough because with you have these standard physiques, maybe for a powerlifter or a bodybuilder, whatever it may be. But even when you think about the general person, that can also apply. And individual um, anatomy was weird too, to think about. I never thought about that before working with you, but like Mary, have you ever taken this into account of the different anatomy, obviously with which moves they might excel at a little bit, but I had no idea how much it would even, I know we're going to go into this when we talk a little bit about deeper, as mm -hmm. far as even like the science where Joe programs down to like bar distance travel is mm -hmm. going to be super cool. Cause I never thought about that before for someone who might be taller or lengthier versus someone who's a little bit shorter as far as how they program in volume, yeah. which is interesting, but I think that'll be a little bit deeper too, but super freaking interesting. So with people who are looking to get stronger, let me ask you this from a powerlifting perspective, the bench, the squat, the deadlift, are those something that most everyone should try and hit at least a regression of, or implement some sort of that movement in their training? If you want to be generally strong, I think those are good movements to base your training around, or at least some version of it. One of the reasons why people refer to them as the big three is they do hit the majority of the body, right? The bench press works on like the entire like frontal side of the body. Squat definitely includes the quadriceps, the majority of the posterior chain, the core. The same could be the be said of the, the deadlift, depending on which stance you do. But even just regressions of that, you look at most training programs that like if you were to just pick a random one on the internet, for example, you're probably going to find some regression of all of those lifts and everything. So yeah, I would say absolutely. And for people that are looking to get into it, because I know a lot of people, like expectation-wise is something Mariana and I talk a lot about, like setting the correct expectations. We'll give you different characters coming in here. Sure. Let's say someone who's fairly new to the bench press, the squat, the deadlift, right? They haven't been programming. Maybe their efficiency or their like their actual form isn't even 100% yet. What are some good goals? And this might be a stupid question, so correct me if I'm wrong. What are some good goals to set as far as expectation, maybe male, female, weight class, to set for those movements when you're just getting into it? And then some goals that we can move this into like rate of progression, like how fast you want those to increase? Sure. If I'm being honest, I think that at least when it comes to the power lifts, I think that having the expectation that everybody's going to be able to hit an exact standard is yeah. a little bit unrealistic just because everybody's going to be built very, very differently. I'll give you an example. I am not built well to squat at all. 
like I have a very short torso and I have long legs. And that typically means that you're going to fold over a lot when you squat, particularly if you're a low bar squatter, like most power lifters are. And mm. squat has just kind of been the lift that for the longest time has just not improved for me. And that's just been the case my entire powerlifting career. As far as like what like realistic goals are, I won't base it off of arbitrary numbers because again, depending on your leverages, how much you weigh, your actual experience with lifting in general, your athletic background might progress slower or faster than any one person. I think it's reasonable maybe from like a male standpoint for within like your first year of doing those lifts, like you should be able to bench you know, 225-ish, you should be able to squat 315-ish, pull 405. I don't think if you dedicate yourself for a year to doing all of those things, you should be able to do that. And then women, I would say maybe around maybe half to one-fourth of that is, is realistic depending on where your size levels are. Like if there's a 95-pound girl, I'm not going to say she's going to be able to bench 135 within like a year. That's a lot, even for a, a complete novice. Uh, okay. Would, now, would you say, so I am a huge fan of using your weaknesses to your advantage. So like you said, you have longer legs, a shorter torso. Like I'm the same way. I have a 38 inch inseam. I'm six feet tall, but I have a short oh, wow. torso. So yeah, squatting has never really been my thing and that's mm -hmm. fine. And I feel like in terms of, would you say that it's a bad idea or a good idea to say what mm. squat, and this is for a person who's not a power lifter, but squats not my realm of expertise where could i would be a good idea to focus more on different compound lifts and maybe only include a squat like once a week or just to keep the foundation there do you think that's a good idea yeah i mean it depends on what your goals are for sure obviously again relating back to how powerlifting works like you have to be good at the squat right yeah. so like in my case just i'll give an example this isn't just me this is something that i know about a lot of people that aren't very well leveraged for the squat the belt squat has become a very popular way to supplement squats in the powerlifting world just because it tends to mimic the resistance curve of a competition squat but it's a lot easier to get through without taxing your back like usually when you're not well built to squat, you tend to, like I said, to fold over a lot more. And the fatigue from that tends to make it harder to recover from. Whereas like in a belt squat, because you don't have the weight attached to your back, you're not folding over as much. It's not taxing that musculature as much. So it's a lot easier to do more volume on that. So in that same vein, I would agree with you there. If your goal is just to generally be strong, but you're not very well leveraged for that, yeah, you could replace it with something, with some kind of regression that is is built better for your leverages. And honestly, again, like the highest level power lifters, the way that they do that, like there's only so much squat bench press and deadlift volume that you're going to be able to do every single week. So we already supplement those lifts with exercises like the belt squat, or if you're like deadlifting, we might have somebody do like RDLs. I have a lot of really strong deadlifters on my roster for some reason. And the thing, again, that's just a coincidence. Like people who have strong deadlifts always seem to seek me out. I don't know why. Uh, they, one of my like big secrets as far as programming goes is I kind of keep the actual competition deadlift volume that they're doing pretty low and I'll have them push RDLs very, very hard because those are going to be generally easy to recover from. And the transfer from RDLs to an actual competition lifter is generally pretty good. Hmm. Okay. That's, that's a good, yeah. Like where you want to play those in and okay. If it's more of an aesthetic goal, cause some people still just want more of an aesthetic goal. Would you think speaking from that side of the coin, would it be more beneficial to play to what you're strong at? So maybe pulling move, and this is not even just to the big three, but pulling movements, if you aren't set up right for those 
squatting kind of motions. Would it make more sense physically to play towards your strength and kind of not put as much pressure on the weaknesses? Yeah, I would say so. I would say if I had to put my finger on the average gym goer, they generally want to look like they lift, but also be able to back that up. So generally speaking, if you're not built as well to squat and for a fact, like it's actively limiting my ability to do the things that are going to make me look good, then yeah, it would probably be better to just go harder on something like a leg press or a, a belt squat or whatever machine you have access to that's going to allow you to actually push your legs close to that point of the right amount of mechanical tension, close enough to failure to actually elicit maximum muscle gain. That's the big difference, like bringing it back around to one of the first things you asked me. That's one of the big differences in the way that we train as power lifters. Like a lot of the lifts that we do, not at that point of failure. We focus more on creating as much force production as we can, because that's one of the aspects that generally builds strength. That's one of the qualities that you have to train. And we very rarely go, go close to failure because it doesn't, do much for the development of your strength. If anything, it taxes you to the point that you can't continue mm. to train as hard. So usually the, like the last week or two is really the ever, if ever, where we get close to failure. The majority of the training that we do is pretty submaximal. So yeah, if you're, if your goal is like aesthetics, you probably are going to need to put those lifts a little bit more on the back burner. And I think if you talk to any modern bodybuilder, they would probably say something similar. Like most of them probably don't barbell bench. Most of them probably don't do a conventional deadlift most of them probably don't do a barbell squat they probably do some some kind of regression that is close to that can you speak more to the training intensity aspect because that was one thing this is one thing i wanted to really talk about i don't even know if i wrote it in the notes beforehand because in relation to this as we've been growing and this is just more to add a personal story in there since we started working together i think i was telling my friend this when they were asking about it i haven't worked to failure on bench press bench pressing three times a week not a single point over the last nine ten months Mm -hmm. working with it as my strengths improvement. And I think that shocks a lot of people to hear. And I get this response on my stories all the time. They're like, why didn't you keep going? Could you speak a little bit more to that concept? So people just starting out to like, maybe understand, Hey, maybe I don't need to be training to failure every single set. Can you talk a little bit more to that? Not just a strength standpoint, but from an overall training standpoint. You have to remember what our goal is with strength training. You are trying to get better at the action of strength. Strength is a specific skill. So whatever sort of lens you view strength from, you have to get good at doing that. Like I said before, if you want to get good at something, you have to do it multiple times per week. So like you, you mentioned off camera, for example, that we have you bench pressing three times per week. I had you go to failure on the first session of bench press, then you're probably not going to be able to do it very well the second time and certainly not the third time. Yeah. So it's really all about keeping you just close enough to failure that you're in that range where you're able to use maximum force production and you get a little bit of feedback as far as the lift goes. It's not so light that you could do it with one hand if I asked you to kind of thing, mm. but it's, it's light enough that you're not reaching that point of mechanical tension failure and being unable to recover from it and lift it your fullest. It's a skill practice thing, honestly, is a big thing. And that's why we train so, so low. As far as if we're talking about the number of reps you have left in the tank, the heaviest that my clients usually go in one training cycle, unless we're maxing them out, is probably an RP eight or nine. So one, one to two reps left in the tank. But again, that happens maybe one, maybe two weeks out of the whole 10, 12, 16 week training cycle. Yeah. And does that translate, do you think, over to even more aesthetic goals? Because that's, sure. that's where something that I think most people need to get it in their heads a little bit too. Do you think, would you say that also transfers or where would you slide that 
Yeah. Two ways that I would answer that question. The first is that just because you're not reaching full mechanical tension does not mean that there is no hypertrophy going on. Yeah. Those lifts, like I said, they, they involve a ton of different muscle groups and the actual tension on the musculature is it's still going to be very, very high. So that combination of things, like if you look at like effective reps theory, for example, the lower repetition type work that we typically do in most powerlifting programs is going to be good for that kind of thing. Is it going to be as efficient for hypertrophy? No, because you're not reaching that full point of mechanical tension close to failure, but it's still going to have some interaction with that. Combine that with the fact that you're generally doing, you know, more training volume. Like, you know, if you would typically get you know, two chest workouts in per week and you got three in, sure, if they're not as close to failure, that might not be as efficient, but you're still going to get some growth. And then the second point that I would add to that is that as powerlifters, we actually, we do accessory work and that accessory work is usually pushed pretty close to failure. Yeah. Because, you know, we know for a fact that our competition lifts, because we're not getting close to failure, we're probably not going to grow as efficiently. And again, we talked about it's valuable to be muscular as a power lifter. I think most power lifters at this point in time understand that. And they focus on just being as jacked as possible. And so they make up the weakness that comes from training submaximal, we'll say inefficient muscle building lifts when it comes to the power lifts by adding accessory work. Just as an example, something that's very popular in powerlifting right now is using very heavy weighted dips to supplement your bench press. And almost universally, you see people as they push their weighted dip super hard, their bench press goes up, even though it's still pretty submaximal in the way that they're performing mm -hmm. the bench. Okay. That makes, I think a lot of people could benefit from that. And especially with, because even if they're training twice per week, and even earlier on in the session, it's like, you still have to recover from that. So net, are you going to be doing more good than bad on like a weekly scale, or like a zoomed out scale, yeah. which a lot of people forget. And even this is one thing we were talking about on here is on one of the three days that you have be bench press. And this is the thing that I think a tool that a lot of people could take on. And this could be on any movement that you want to get stronger on. This is the first time that I had programmed in a specific day where on bench press, for example, you have me training at a load cap of about 50% of my one rep max. So very lightweight RPE, you know, two, three, mm -hmm. maybe extremely lightweight, but slowing down the tempo very exaggeratedly, like slowing down the tempo for like a three second negative, three second pause on my chest and positive taken nowhere close to failure just to go through the movement and get better. And I'll say just from a anecdotal standpoint, that's where I think I noticed the biggest changes in my efficiency and how I did the bench press, like engaging my leg drive and my core better and my last better. That's where I noticed the most, I guess, skill enhancement. I think that's a good way that you're referring to it. Yep. Like you're getting better at the skill of that movement. So do you think people, if they really want to get stronger at a certain movement, using that as a tool could be helpful yeah. at a certain point? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to depend on the movement that you're doing for sure. Like the bench press, just because it's typically the lift that people associate with strength that is probably going to be the lightest out of what you're doing. They can typically handle more frequency. I mentioned before, I bench press five times a week. Some of the people that I train with bench six times a week. Ariana, seven. That one's going to be a little bit more forgiving. I would not recommend going out and deadlifting three times per week. That's mm. it, it, more than likely just going to tax a lot. Because typically out of all the strength lifts that you can think of, the power lifts, whatever you want to call them, deadlift is going to be the lift where you move the most weight. But there's also no eccentric component to it. It's straight up concentric. So it's going to be pretty taxing. You're moving weight from a dead stop that probably, unless you're like really long armed, really, you know, short torso, like I mentioned before. And even then you probably won't get as much out of that just because you'll be moving more weight. It's about like the absolute load that you're moving 
But again, with something like bench press, where you're about to bench 405 right now, you can get away with that third day of benching 225, 235, whatever, mm -hmm. very slow tempo. And you'll see benefit from that because you're literally practicing the movement. Specifically, like the reason that we're doing tempo with you is exactly like I talked about. It's a chance for you to really feel out that movement pattern to, to essentially improve your neurological efficiency, to make mm -hmm. that movement pattern stronger in your head. So yeah, I think as long as it's a lift that is not super duper taxing to you, adding another day that's just very light, it doesn't even have to be tempo. It can just be a super light percentage of your one rep max for low repetitions. Just to practice is a great strategy for getting better at any one lift. I feel like the topic of efficiency is often missed when you think about the general population just kind, kind of wanting to get stronger. I, I want to be bigger. I want to be stronger. Efficiency can get overlooked, ignored, yeah. put off that aspect of training. Could you explain where you would put efficiency in terms of order of importance when it comes to executing a lift at near your maximum potential? Yeah, sure. So just to be clear, when you say efficiency there, because when us powerlifters talk about efficiency, we typically talk about cheating our leverages a little bit. When you're talking about efficiency, are you referring just more to like being good at the movement or more yes, what I yeah, just said? More okay. so that end. <laughs> the way I always term this with people, as far as that type of efficiency, like just being good at a movement, your body is always going to default to where it feels the strongest when you're lifting heavy. I'm sure like, you know, both of you can think of a time where you were like maxing out a lift you weren't really thinking about any sort of cues or anything like that. You're like, oh my gosh, this is so heavy. I need to lift this. And that's kind of all your brain's doing. So you don't really have time to be thinking about all these specific cues that they just go out the window. So in terms of maximizing efficiency, being good at a movement pattern, yeah, you just need to work on that. So that's where your body defaults to during that type of a situation. And to be honest, like that doesn't always work out. There are definitely times, I'm sure we've all seen it, where somebody will go to pull a really heavy weight and they practice very, very long and their hips might pop up in the deadlift, or they might fold over a little bit more than usual in the squat. Goal with that is again, for your body to be efficient enough at adjusting that movement pattern that they can still grind their way through it. Oh so, yes, definitely important. And it's something that I, th I think, I don't know that I would put it I don't know that I would put it at the top of the list of things as far as like development of strength. But like I said before, strength is a specific skill and you do have to develop that to be good at it. It's definitely up there for sure. I would probably put it maybe like third in order of importance if I had to give you a list. Awesome. Something you made me, something you said made me think, how often do you think, and this could be probably different for powerlifters versus most people training goals. How often is it okay to like forego efficiency and form? to push heavier weights, to push closer to feel like, is, would you say that's ever okay? Is it something that you might be able to bend with every now and then, especially if you're trying to like really jump from one block to the next, is that ever okay to kind of jump that? So where people are like, damn, like I can't go this heavy because my form always folds. Is it okay to do that? And is there a safe way to do it? Yeah, I would say to me, like the, the classic 80, 20 rule is good because if you're the kind of person who is just always thinking about their form all the time, and I'll say this, you know, you mentioned you have a lot of coaches that listen to this. That is one of the lessons that I really had to learn early on as a coach. Cause I was that coach that like, I know a lot about optimizing movement and things like that. Like I consider myself pretty good at that. And I was always trying to correct my client's form all the time. And what I learned over time is that if you do that too much, the client's going to be thinking way too much. They're going to be just 
thinking about every little cue, trying to optimize things, and they're not actually going to move the weight. Sometimes it's just efficient to just be like, you know what, just go pull the weight, just go mm-hmm. bench the weight. It's not something that if you if you never actually touch heavier weight, it's not going to get any better. You know, like progressive mm-hmm. overload is still important in powerlifting, just like any other form of weight training, like your stimulus does need to increase over time if you actually want to get stronger. And yeah, there's going to be some times where you touch a weight and it's not going to look pretty. It's not going to look perfect, but you moved it. And then mm-hmm. you know, over time you get more efficient at moving it. I freaking love it. And probably stacking it in situations where it's a little safer to do so Yeah, than others. It was a good, okay. It was a good story too with clients. Cause I, I think we've all probably been there a little bit where you have to be okay with foregoing. It's like, okay, is this technically like mechanically the best they should be doing this movement? No, but are they doing what they need to be doing to make progress? Yeah. And you kind of have to learn how to forego that, which is pretty cool. And what I want to piggyback off of that is something you mentioned when I forget which question we we're talking about benching being more forgiving than other movements. Let's talk about the compounds and maybe some additional movements. Where would you say max frequency per week for a deadlift, for a squat, for a bench? would be and then should be because i think especially if you're starting out you shouldn't automatically jump to the max range of that or at least i want to hear your take on that and then where would you differ those movements so if we're talking like specifically squat bench press and deadlift my default for all of them is two times per week like i said you generally want to practice things as often as you can as often as you can recover from there's a quote by lane norton that i love when it comes to this if somebody kidnapped your entire family and said you have one month to put 100 pounds on your squat would you squat one time per week? Yeah, that's actually a very good quote. No. I love that quote. Yeah. You would do it every single day probably because you only have one month. Mm. But to that effect, if you want to be good at those lifts, if your goal is to be skillful at those lifts, two times per week is the absolute bare minimum. Um, mm. Just because that, again, allows you to get more practice in with the movements. You get better at improving it. And of course, as you get stronger, your musculature will grow and it'll all be one circle of getting better at the movement and increasing the muscle mass, et cetera, et cetera. Now, as far as like the maximal frequencies, I would say the lower body lifts are a little bit more, a little bit easier. Squat, I would say probably max three times a week. I have personally myself squatted four times per week before. And as great as that was, I, my job was doing like, super duper low volume each day it's not very sustainable it's just hard to actually come into the gym and do that consistently um it worked out for me and me specifically and there was a very specific reason as to why i was doing that i'm happy to tell that story in the future but yeah i would not suggest going beyond three times a week two to three is usually my default and again depending on what a lifter's leverages are like and their experience level there's a whole bunch of different things that go into that but yeah usually two or three deadlift is always either one or one or two times per week there will be times where i actually pull somebody's deadlift back to one time per week if they're a very, very gifted puller and they're lifting so much that they just can't recover from two, even if we go very, very light on the second session, or if they're somebody who is just not built well to deadlift at all, usually that would be somebody who would be a candidate to pull one time per week. But most of the time, I would say nine out of 10 people, you're probably gonna be able to deadlift twice per week with one session being very, very light and one session Mm -hmm. being very, very hard. Bench press is where it gets a little bit crazy. Cause like I mentioned, depending on the lifter, you can probably handle up to six times per week. Now, again, I'll use my friend Nico as an example. Nico Flores is his name. He's one of the best power lifters in the country. He can bench press 190 kilograms, which is like 419. And he weighs 180 pounds. He's super duper strong. 
super duper strong. And he bench presses six times per week. Nico, however, he's got a very good bench press arch. So his range of motion is shorter than most. And he bench presses with a max grip. Those two things put together, his bench range of motion is going to be pretty short. So generally, he's probably going to be able to handle more bench pressing. So that's where you have to look at somebody's leverages, the way they perform the lift, and also just talk to the lifter or think about it critically yourself. If you're writing your own training program, you have to think, okay, if I'm Tony and I have super duper long arms and no bench press arch, am I actually going to be able to handle bench pressing six times per week? Probably not. It all depends on the lifter. I need to interject here because I just, I know that I get so many questions about this and I see it all the time. Bench press arch is good for you. It's bad. People do it all the time. Can you talk more about for our listeners who maybe don't know what that is and have your stance on it. Sure. So to answer your question, Mariana, the bench press arch, the idea of creating an arch in the bench press is using your legs to push your push yourself onto your traps and create extension through the upper and lower back, which creates a little bit of a, an arc or a bridge, whatever people want to call it. It places the chest in a slightly more mechanically advantageous position and sort of like a decline bench press might be. And yeah, generally speaking, we'll cut some range of motion out of the bench. I would argue if you are bench pressing correctly, setting up in a way that is conducive to moving enough weight, you're usually going to have a small arch in your back regardless. But in powerlifting, we tend to exaggerate it. We use our legs to push super duper hard to the point that we're maybe just our, our shoulders and the edge of our butt are touching the bench. Not everybody can do this. It is a genetic skill. It's something that you can get better at, but everybody's probably going to have some limits. I'm sure you've seen videos of people on the internet that have extremely high arches. That is a genetic thing. I know a lot of people don't like that, but it's just a part of the sport. Me personally, I don't care if the bench press moves two inches. If I moved it, as long as I get white lights on the platform, that's what matters to me. That mm-hmm. is the skill that I'm practicing for. And again, is that great for muscle growth? No. In fact, I would argue, you know, just because of the humerus, the top of the arm isn't really moving a whole lot. You don't get as much pec activation as you would if you were just to just lie flat. Um, mm-hmm. And to me, that's fine because as a power lifter, I'm doing my weighted dips. I'm doing dumbbell bench press. I'm doing other things that will help grow my pecs to make up for that. It's not necessarily a bad thing as long as you can accept the fact that as somebody who's using an arch in the bench press, you're just trying to move the most weight possible. That's what you care about. Then that's how you should bench press. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people don't consider that last part there, especially if you haven't been going to the gym or pushing heavy weight and you want to, that can be intimidating to think, oh shit, I can't do that. Do I need to do that? It's like, you really have to think about, and we've already discussed this. You've brought this up so many different times, kind of your goals, what you're training for, the type of training you're doing, purpose behind it. So I just, I really like that you brought that up and you went through that with us because I know I've gotten so many questions about it. That's awesome. And just to comment on it, I've heard some people say that it's like unsafe and it's going to hurt your back or, or something like that, especially if you like work into it, if you're just starting out with it, just like any other part of the body, your spine can adapt. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, your spine is actually much less fragile than people think. And again, as long as you give it the time to adapt, it'll be fine. If you're trying to force yourself into a gigantic arch, like, yeah, that might hurt you. But if you give it time and work on the skill, just like any other aspect of it, you can probably get good at arching as good as you can possibly get for your own genetics and not hurt yourself. And yet you won't be risking any kind of like low back injury or anything like that. A lot of people say that for some reason, and that's always just kind of boggled my mind. Yeah. I've asked someone when someone brought it up to me and like said, that's so dangerous. And I, 
asked him, I was like, can you send me a picture of you at your desk at work all day? <laughs> Are you sitting like this, adding all those that compression forces to your body, like contributing to all of your low back pain? Are you sitting like that all day for eight hours a day? Like there's so many things that, you know, you can do to injure your posture, your back. And that's the first one where most, more often than not, the people with the really, really large arches are doing it in a more safe way that's conducive to what their bodies able to do. I have a girl (laughs) that I coach. Her name's Denise Juarez. She's actually out in California. She's 95 pounds and she can bench press 200 pounds. Her mom was a ballerina and she has crazy genetics for flexibility and she can arch her back like crazy. Mm. It's, that is something that genetically speaking, as an athlete, that is one of her gifts. But it's just like any other sport in the world. You know, People are going to be taller and they're going to be able to dunk in basketball. They're going to have amazingly long arms that can swim more efficiently. You know, mm-hmm. It's just like any other sport. Why people get so bent out of shape, haha, pun about it, <laughs> I don't understand. My genetics are definitely not mixed with ballerina. No, no. If that's your goal is to improve that lift, that's what's important. To what degree do you think people on the bench press should consider arch? Because I think when we were even first starting, it wasn't even me just to be good at that lift, but I didn't have any arch, I don't think on the bench at all. And it just wasn't even efficient at that point. So people that want to get better at bench, but it's not their main goal is to compete and to win at this movement. How much arch if you have an answer to this already, would you say is even more conducive, more helpful to the bench press than just being flat? Because that, that changed my leverage point quite a bit. Like it, it helped a lot. Yeah. I would relate this back to the topic of leg drive on bench press. So it, the way that bench press is supposed to be performed, I think a lot of like newer lifters don't get is that uh, leg drive basically just using your legs to stabilize your body is an important part of the bench press. It's not just a chest, shoulder, tricep movement. It really is a full body movement. And if you're doing leg drive correctly, you're going to just naturally have some small arch in your back. Laying completely flat is just going to cause a lack of efficiency like we just talked about. Even if you don't want to be a competitive power lifter, having some kind of arch is going to be conducive to benching the most weight possible just because it allows you to move more weight. The reason why leg drive is so important is it helps you resist the force of the bar coming down at you. The trick that I always tell people to know if they're using leg drive correctly is to watch their knees your bench press from the side and you see as the barbell touches your chest that your knees shoot forward, you're probably not pushing hard enough with your legs to resist that force. And when you get to the point where you're lifting heavy enough weight, if your position changes, it's going to be really hard to reverse that weight off your chest. Yeah. That was one of the trickier cues. I remember when we first started that I had to, to learn. I think that as some of my clients, everyone I think struggles with that, just comprehending that your legs are involved in the bench press at all. And it makes a big difference. Yeah. But I think that is a big one. And I think, I think you're right. Filming yourself definitely helps. I was going to say, do you have a good, even a reference if it's hard to audibly explain someone who's like, how the F do I even start implementing leg drive on a move? My bench press. I do. How would you say that? We're all sitting in them right now. You know how you push yourself backwards in an office chair like this? Yes. That's what leg drive is like. 
you should be you should that same motion but you're keeping your feet on the floor obviously now there are different ways that people say you should implement leg drive a lot of people will say like you should push your hardest right as you're trying to reverse the weight the problem with that is that your butt starts to come up off the bench which depending on the person that you talk to these days they still count that i personally don't uh-uh. Uh-uh. Um, get that like, out of here yeah that to me that is that's not that's more like it's more like hip thrusting the barbell off your chest. I don't know that I necessarily consider that a good bench. If you ask me in powerlifting, that definitely isn't a good bench. If your butt comes off the bench, it's a no lift. The trick with it is to create that same force as if you're trying to push yourself backwards in in a in an office chair, a wheelchair, whatever, but it needs to be constant. As soon as you lay down to get yourself into position, you're pushing back on your feet like that. That is a pretty perfect example. And that's why I really recommend people struggling with that, especially if you're going for bench. I don't think I could have learned how to do that if I didn't have those lower intensity, lightweight days. Zero chance I would have learned how to do that because my my brain was always focused on pressing, pressing, pressing. I've never even thought twice about my lower body. So it's really hard under heavy weight or weight that feels heavy to think about incorporating something you've never done before. Yeah. Last question on intensity. I do want to talk about the distance traveled because you were the first one that I've ever heard that from. With me going to a one rep max, this is more of a gym bro question. How often, if people's goal, let's say our aesthetic and then a second situation would be for strength, how often is it important that you test and go to your one rep max versus just use calculations or estimates in training cycles? So that is a good question. I, if we're talking just you know people who want to be generally strong in the gym, I would say you could probably do it like maybe two, three times a year and be just fine. If you're a newer lifter, you can obviously test that a little bit more often, maybe five, six times a year, something like that. But if you are somebody who's been in the gym for, we'll say more than like two, three years, you honestly could get away with doing it. Never. The cool thing about RPE based training. So, you know, reps left in reserve is that there's pretty reliable calculators out there that allow you to assume what your one rep max is. And if you can do a lift that's within, you know, one to two reps left in the tank, you can assume with most, most reasonable uh, expectation that that calculator will be accurate as to where that is. But again, like a, an RPE nine lift is pretty taxing regardless. O- oftentimes it's not necessarily wor- even worth it to go up to the RPE 10 just so that you can not tax yourself and get right back into training. For me, most of the time, unless I accidentally overshoot, same thing with my lifters, they're almost never going to a new one rep max. Now there are maybe situations where they hit a new PR that's above their one rep max, but it's you know, not actually RPE 10 failure, mm-hmm. couldn't do anything more. If you're experienced enough, you don't need to at all. But yeah, I'd say you could get away with like two or three times a year if you really wanted to. Because I know a lot of people like love the idea of maxing out and want to know what their best lift is. Yeah, that, I was like, that's probably more of a gym bro. Okay, uh, Mariana, give me some insight, at least with the women I've worked with. I haven't noticed that being a weird obsession like some guys have. Have you ever obsessed with that or no? No, actually I did back when I was training to go to volleyball in college. So when I was in the off season, I did a lot. I was in the gym so much doing a lot of weightlifting and I was really, really focused on my one rep max, like what I could do. It was just something to work towards. And I also, so I I guess it's really individual, but having like that specific of a goal with a purpose. I feel like you see that a lot more in women 
Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, if it's just like general in the gym, what you fixate on, definitely not that. It's, a, it's more of a gym bro thing. I, yeah, I would more say so. And that's just kind of, I feel like the natural, I honestly feel like that could fall into a lot of the misconceptions either way though, about what weightlifting does to your body. I feel like so many women will always have the underlying fear of getting too bulky despite so many times that being that myth just being debunked over and over again. I just feel like there's always going to be a little general fear there. So pushing to failure all the time, having that goal, it's just not really there. (laughs) Yeah. And okay. Give me some starter tips. So people that are listening to this now are probably a little confused because I know they're like, okay, well, I'm not taking things as close to failure. Maybe I don't need to train for my one rep max as much. Can you give some people a few pointers on if they want to test and they say, I want to test out my one rep max, your best approach on how to do so or build up to it? Because I think going back to the gym bro mentality, when I would do it in my first, in like my teenage years, like 18, 19, 20, I would just do it whenever I felt good that day. Like I would just be like a random, hell yeah, I'm feeling great. Let's see how much weight I can throw on the bar. Is that the best way to do it? Or would you recommend if someone's looking into doing it, starting to structure their workouts a little bit differently? You might have a a bit of success if you just feel particularly good. I can't say like, I can't say that that wouldn't work, but if you want to be a little bit more systematic about it and like basically increase the odds of you actually being able to express a new level of strength. Yeah. You probably need to set up your workouts a little bit differently. I talk about this on my TikTok a lot. I talk about this on social media. It's the way that I structure my clients training. Um, the use of heavy top sets is probably the biggest difference in what people aren't doing in their training, um, versus what they need to do. And that's how I would set up their training. So like, if you're like brand new, like you're like, okay, I want to test my squat max. You could probably get away with maybe about like six weeks of doing this. So heavy top sets, the clinical definition of this, like what is actually used in research on strength training is the idea of a top set. That's about 85% ish of your one rep max or heavier. That's for most men and women. That's where the threshold of moving purely from moving purely from a like just lifting lightweight to, okay, like I have to be neurologically efficient here. I'm at a point where the maximum amount of muscle is probably going to be recruited regardless of like the technique that I use. Everything is going to be used. Essentially, it's going to mimic what we call like strength skill. It's heavy enough that you actually have to be on point with your technique and and just in general are going to be practicing in a way that's generally similar to what you're going to be moving when it comes to a one rep max. As far as rep ranges go for that, most people in order to keep the weight semi-submaximal, that's going to be triples or below. My favorite way to structure this with some of my more advanced clients is a block of triples, a block of doubles, a block of singles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we're generally just increasing the weight that we use on those. And then depending on their performance each week, you know, there's kind of a range of what they might use. Most of the time, I think I, I cap out my training cycles around anywhere between like 95 and 98% of their one rep max, unless they're doing particularly well over the weeks, which in some cases they might take over a hundred percent before they, they actually max out. It just kind of depends on what they're moving the weight with. But if you were, again, somebody brand new who was doing this and you only had six weeks, I would say just start out with singles just because that's very specific. That's as mm-hmm. close as you can actually get to performing a one rep max without doing it. So maybe you start out 85%, you go 95 and then just make the increment jumps a little bit smaller each go around. And then the only other thing that I would say that you need to do that's a little bit different is you need to be strategic about your rest. So there's something that we use in powerlifting called tapering. It's very similar to the way that runners structure their training before a race. Ours is just a little bit different. 
So tapering for powerlifting is essentially just performing a form of rest that increases our fitness, which in the case of powerlifting or just strength training is the ability to lift heavy weight while decreasing mm. fatigue. Classic adaption model when it comes to training in general. So the way that we do it in powerlifting is we just pull back on the amount of training volume that we're doing, but we generally keep the intensity across the week about the same or increase it slightly. So actually, you know, as we, as this episode is released, Tony, that's what you're going through at the moment, but your training is also like very different from the average individual yeah. because of the, the training volume that you're actually doing. We didn't really modify your training a lot. There's also the fact that like you're performing very well. If I mm. had any advice for tapering, because it is a little bit more of an art than a science, if you're feeling very strong and even if you feel beat up, it's always good to err on the side of caution when it comes to tapering, because these lifts, especially the bench press can be very finicky. And if you pull out too much training stress, it'll actually lower your fitness, your ability to lift heavy weight, and then you'll have over tapered and you actually feel terrible on the day. You got to kind of monitor like how you're performing versus how fatigued you are. If it, it's okay, if you have some fatigue left over, as long as you still perform well. So like I said, in your case, Tony, like with your training, because you've been generally doing pretty well, even though you have experienced some fatigue, a lot of that is probably like just from outside factors, like we talked about. So your training stress, I didn't modify a whole lot going into this one mm -hmm. max test because I think you, if I had asked you to last week, I think you could have already benched 405. So I didn't modify your training too much. So that's kind of the idea here is that like, okay. we, we don't want to mess with training stress too much. That's a little insight into what I, what I do as a powerlifting coach. You pay attention to, and for the people listening, it's like really just pay attention, like really pay attention to your fatigue, really pay attention to your performance and don't just pass it like, oh, it was a bad day. Oh, I was extra fatigued. My performance, pay attention to those. Things. Your body's kind of relaying some information to you and it's nice to listen. And obviously the more you do it, probably the more, be like the better you get at it. Yeah. And someone like a coach who sees that dozens of times every single week with your clients, you get pretty damn good at something like that. Yeah. In and, the end. Now I should say I get as good as I can. Sometimes like the unfortunate thing is like people's life stressors change all the time. Yeah. They're, like I can monitor the their training volume and I can tell them to optimize as many variables outside of that as they can, but it's always going to change. So it's, it, again, it's more of an art than it is a science. It's very similar, like bodybuilding peaking. You can run the exact same peak in bodybuilding. You can give them the exact same amount of carbs, exact same amount of water, et cetera, et cetera. And they can still look terrible. Similar thing with powerlifting and similar thing with strength training. Like if you're just trying to like, let's say you're trying to max your OHP, you could be feeling great. And then you get a few nights of bad sleep and you don't taper as hard and then, okay, you're probably not going to be able to perform a max as well. Got to pay attention to those things. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. So pay attention to it, ladies and gentlemen. And I think, do you think maybe one of the reasons I was going to say, and cause I, I didn't think about it too hard. Do you think going down for everyone listening, they kind of know that I've tapered from six or not tapered. I've taken it back from six to five down to four training days per week. Do you think having a little extra recovery? in like the general population is a really good thing if you're trying to, to incorporate some strength. Yeah. So like I mentioned before, a lot of the, a lot of the heavy compound lifts, even if you are going short of failure, they're very taxing on the body because they involve a lot of different muscle groups. They can be hard to recover from. And I think less is more when it comes to like the training stress. I very rarely ever give out protocols where somebody's training six days a week. I train six days a week specifically because it works with my schedule and it keeps most of my workouts very, very short. But most of the time when it comes to like recovery, I'm looking for something that's a little bit more sustainable for that person. Strength training sessions do because you're lifting heavier on average tend to be a little bit longer. I'm looking at the 
impact that that's going to have on their entire life. And so, yeah, usually, usually like four, I find is the sweet spot for most people as far as like the number of workouts per week, just because that gives them a little bit more recovery time. Having almost as many days off as you do on is particularly good. Okay. And here's the question I've been dying to get to, because we've talked about it a little bit, but not more. And this might be a little bit more advanced for, I know coaches are certainly going to take, take away from this. But even people who are lifting and maybe trying to maybe feeling stuck at some of these movements, you introduced me to this idea, Marianne, I don't know if I was telling you about it a little bit, but incorporating or at least looking into the distance traveled by the bar during a movement. And are you just altering the total training volume of that movement through the week based on that? In layman's terms, right? Like I have a longer, really stupid long arms. So I'm bench pressing a bar a lot further. I'm a taller individual, so the deadlift, I'm pulling the bar a lot further than the ground than someone who might be shorter or have a different just an, like skeletal setup mm -hmm. than me. So what point do you think average people who are just trying to get stronger at these lifts, not even just power lifters, should start paying attention to their personal anatomy, their personal anatomy and how they kind of schedule structure their training, their volume, things like that? Yeah. So first of all, this concept, I have to give a shout out to one of my good friends. I consider him a mentor, Steve DeNovi. I would argue one of the, if not the best powerlifting coaches alive right now. He's fantastic at what he does. He has a great YouTube channel that all of y'all should check out because you can do a deep dive on this exact topic and many other great ones that I probably would not understand if, weren't, if it weren't for Steve. But the basic idea of this, as we know, we think of tonnage, a means to measure work in lifting, right? So weight times reps times sets. But mm -hmm. what we don't think about in reality is that there is technically a fourth variable to that, and that is the distance traveled. See, the same person lifting, you know, 100 pounds for three sets of five, one person being four foot two, and the other person being six foot, that six foot person is technically doing more work because they are moving mm -hmm. that barbell, dumbbell, whatever implement further. So you have to take that into account when you're programming. Now, mind you, there's, if we're talking like statistically speaking, 80% of people are probably going to fit in that range of most rep ranges are going to work well for you. Mm -hmm. But when you are somebody who is outside of that 80% in the population, Tony, you're a great example because you're quite tall for somebody that lifts, I would say. Most people that are your height are like your basketball players, et cetera, that aren't really taking their lifting that seriously. I suck at basketball. <laughs> yeah, me too. So do I, <laughs> and I'm upset about it because being six feet tall as a Female, just what you do. That's what everyone asks you. Oh, do you play basketball? That's like the first thing they, <laughs> they ask. Yeah, my dad, he played basketball pretty darn hard and he's pretty disappointed that I am not super Didn't good at it. Didn't quite get the genetics for it, unfortunately. Um, getting back to the topic at hand. Yeah, that's something that you certainly have to take into account. Mind you, like a lot of this is just going to be guess and check type work, right? Um, mm -hmm. But again, just to use an extreme example, somebody who's six foot four and trying to do a barbell squat, like they, the relative intensity of a certain number of reps is going to be very, very different. Just as an example, I think like a set of five, this is just off the top of my head on like an average RPE to percentage conversion chart, a set of five at RPE, it's about 80% of your one rep max. Right. But you have to keep in mind that like, if you're somebody who's super duper tall, an RP eight set of five, you probably aren't going to be doing 80% of your one rep max with that. That's probably going to be much lower. It's probably mm -hmm. going to be you know, like you're probably going to get much closer to failure with a lower percentage of your one rep max just because you're doing more work. So the way that I implement that with most people is just like observing their leverages and saying, okay, it's probably not super productive for 
Tony to be doing eights on bench press because he's not really going to be able to use very heavy weights for sets of eight. He's probably going to be limited by the fact that he has to do so much more work and his sets that are getting close to failure are probably going to be much lighter than what we want. I would say on average, like as a, as somebody who's training for strength, you want the majority of your training to be somewhere in the range of like that 70 to 85% of your one rep max range. Cause that's mm-hmm. just heavy enough that we can still feel that skill practice aspect, that sort of deal. And again, with say like eights, for example, if you have a very long range of motion, you're probably not going to be in that range relative intensity wise for the majority of your training, and you're not going to get as good of adaption. You kind of have to think about it from that aspect. And as just like an average gym goer, like it's very easy to just think, okay, we'll, we'll use the squat example that I just talked about. Like if you're like very, very tall, you're probably not going to have a good time doing eights, right? Most people High hate intensity cardio. Yeah. Most people hate doing eights in general, but if you're taking that bar through a very long range of motion, it's probably not going to be as productive for your goal to be stronger at squats. Or again, we'll use a non-power lift in this particular case. Let's say you want to be really good at a barbell OHP. If you're, if you've got super duper long arms, more than likely you're going to start to fatigue a lot earlier with much lighter weights. If you're doing like sets of 10, it's not going to be as productive. So it's, I don't think it's anything like super duper revolutionary, but it does make you think like, Hmm, I might have an easier time getting, you know, Tony stronger. If I have him doing moderate to low reps for the majority of his training, because he's going to be able to push himself into like percentages of his one rep max, that are more conducive to him building strength without getting super duper close to failure and being able to continuously push block in and block out rather than, okay, you do eights and it's supposed to be a four week block, but you get to 60% on week, week three and you're getting close to failure on like that eighth rep. Like it's just not super productive. Again, the majority of the people that are listening out there, this concept may not necessarily apply to Like if you're an average build in general, no, you're, you're probably going to be fine on a variety of rep ranges, but maybe you have super duper long arms and maybe it's the opposite thing, right? Like maybe on deadlifts, you have super duper long arms and you're struggling to make progress. Maybe you need to do higher rep deadlifts just to get more actual work in because you're moving the bar very little. And so you can, you can just kind of just intuitively look at a person and just be like, okay, their range of motion is not super far. They can probably handle more work. Let's give them some higher rep stuff. That kind of a deal. It's that simple. Okay. Cause I was like, it, for the general pot, I'm like, I was almost thinking about asking if people lay on the outside of the bell curve for height, either shorter than average or taller than average, but a better assessment would probably be more just individual anatomy based. Like you could have an average height individual like you said, with really long arms and maybe shorter legs, and they would still have a shorter bar pass. So it might be worth for them. So on a, would you say for people listening that might want to look into it, how much do the rep ranges and anything else vary if you do notice, oh, dang, I've got a really short range of motion on one of these movements versus someone who's like, I'm moving that bar far. Is it a rep or two? Is it several? Where would you have someone test that out and slide so the the average like average leveraged individuals the range that i typically take them through is somewhere between seven and two for as far as like their prescribed working sets we're not talking like heavy top sets here seven and two the main reason is because the majority of the associated percentages like as far as from five to eight RPE, which is where a typical strength program goes. The majority of those rep ranges have intensities that fall between that 70 and 85% that I talked about. 
but again, if somebody is particularly, I mean, we can even talk about it from a height perspective because that definitely comes into play too. Like if they're particularly tall, we'd probably have to cut out like the sevens and maybe even the sixes because relative intensity wise, those percentages that are associated with those RPs might shift as much as like 5%. So like maybe a tall person only does like five repetitions because anything more than that, they start to burn out on lighter weight stuff. Does that make sense? Yes. I thank God that you took that into account because I higher repetition work is my least favorite thing in the entire world. Yeah, me too. So I'm so glad you took that into account. I think we start, what's the, I think you on deads and bench, I think you, the max you had me going was five. Yep. Exactly. Even a long time ago. Yep. And that thank was God. again, like that does, the only thing that does kind of suck about that is that that does limit the ranges that we can take somebody through in terms of like changing what they do block to block. It's always probably going to be better to be able to have more rep ranges that you know are going to be effective for a person. Like mm. again, speaking to the opposite, I would say I've seen up to like tens being effective for really, really short range of motion people or just mm. really short people. Like I have some like small girls that are, you know, in the like 90 to hundred pound range. Like I might give them tens on squats and they hate me for it, but it's just like, you're so small and your one rep max is not that high. So in order to actually get the amount of work in that you need to make progress, we have to do this many reps. So yeah, it just hurts. That's how I, that, I, that's would, how I honestly think I might puke if I had to do 10 reps. I can't think of the last that's time. That's not I, exaggerating. I did. <laughs> that's always a funny part. Now, I think that's most of what I wanted to run through today. Mariana, is there anything else on top that you want to, throw in there. I've got one final question at the end. No, I don't think so. No other questions. I'm, my first coach I ever had when I was training, I think I was like a junior in high school and I was six feet by then. And they were having me do t 10 reps for my squat. And I am so stubborn. I just wasn't doing it. I would do like five or six. And it was just so defeating. I felt so defeated because I was like, oh, I'm so lazy. I can't do this. I feel like I'm dying by like mm. seven. So that was the first time. And then I got a new coach and that was the first time that I actually heard about that, that that was like my height was putting me at a disadvantage here, trying to do 10 reps with the girls who are like five, four, five, five, didn't even make any sense. So I just feel like there, there are more components to think about when it comes to your body and your anatomy then yeah. that actually play a significant role that people don't think about. Most important question. And I'm going to take this as Bible as scripture okay. is sumo cheating. <laughs> uh, no, no, it is not. It's a very different way to, to move weight than conventional. I'm of the opinion that sumo is the harder of the two deadlift variations. Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. Because there are technically speaking more muscle groups that are involved in your success than in the conventional deadlift. Like the adductors are, are a lot more involved compared to the conventional deadlift. The quadriceps come into play a little bit more just because there's a little bit more, you know, knee flexion extension going on. And if I'm being honest, sumo deadlift is a lot easier to mess up technique wise. You can absolutely mm. muscle your way through a conventional deadlift. Whereas with sumo, it is a lot harder to do that, particularly because the amount of force that it takes to break inertia off the floor is a lot harder with such a wide base of support. It's right at the bottom of the lift when you're trying to first move the weight that it feels hard. Whereas like with conventional, because you have a closer base of support, it gets harder towards the middle. So you can definitely muscle the weight up a lot easier with conventional because of where that resistance curve changes. 
stretches. You can try to muscle up a sumo deadlift, but most of the time what will happen is you'll get stuck at the knees. Whereas you can actually muscle your way through a conventional deadlift fully. No, I don't think sumo is cheating. In fact, I think it is the harder of the two. That's the answer I needed. See, that's why I do sumo, everyone, is because it's harder and I want the hard. I want... <laughs> that's the exact answer I now, needed. I will say, muscle building wise, if we had to compare the two, conventional deadlift is more than likely going to be better. Unless you just happen to have like terrible deadlift leverages and still have a super long range of motion, you know, like someone I know, Tony, cough, cough. It's genetics, man. I got screwed. <laughs> I'm not mad about it. I do not like conventional. Okay. So for people listening, is game day Northeast Austin? It's actually Southeast. Southeast. Yeah. So close to the airport. We're about a five minute drive from the Austin airport. Oh, okay. Anyone listening in Austin or nearby, especially that check out game day, yeah. Jujulit. And it'll pop up. I know it did because I've done it a couple of times. Pop it up and go check it out. Joe, what's your socials? I am at Joe underscore game day on Instagram. And you can also find me on TikTok, which is where I know Tony from, at the Joe Stanek. You know what's a weird thing that I just noticed is we all met through TikTok. Yeah. Crazy, right? So Hopefully if you're soon. in the Austin area, go check out game day. Check what they got going on. Can people just come by, check it out, buy a day pass or a week pass or a month pass or something like that? We have a 24-hour guest pass system. If you go on our website, you can actually purchase a guest pass even if you are not a member and get access to the gym 24-7. So we are a 24-7 facility for anybody that has oh, yeah. a guest pass or a membership, of course. But yeah, so if you even if it's 2 a.m., you, you have a, you know, a layover in Austin or something like that, you can get into the gym even if we aren't staffed. Just go on our website. I didn't even think about that. You're five minutes from the airport. Take a quick Uber over. Oh, that's, and you just got a freaking rage to do some sumos. Yep. At two in the morning. Yep. I hate when that happens. <laughs> I don't have a game day to freaking take it out on. Okay, so check that out if you're in Austin. Go check him out, especially because his content on social media is a lot more education based to teach. That's where I still learn a lot of principles. A lot of people still do. So if you are interested in getting stronger, translating all this over, go check that out. One of the best places to learn, especially with the resources on there. Any closing notes, Joe, for the people? If you're in the Sacramento area and want to come out to the Third Street Barbell USA Powerlifting Competition, February 4th and 5th, I'm hosting that along with Silent Mike. I believe we have confirmation that Barbell Brigade is also going to be there, as well as Omar Isaf. And we're working on Russell Orhi at the moment. Again, fingers crossed on that one. We'll see if he actually says yeah. yes. But regardless, it's going to be a big old party. There's going to be a lot of great lifters doing their thing uh, and the opportunity to meet some cool people, buy some some cool stuff from cool brands. So please come check that out. Besides that, yeah, be sure to check out Game Day Barbell as well. All of our socials are at Game Day Barbell across the board. There's more than just me. I actually head up a whole team of coaches at Game Day Barbell that all put out a great amount of informative content. So please be sure to check that out on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Fridays specifically is when you'll see that informative content on our socials on Game Day Barbell. So if you're interested in learning more about strength training, I'm even delving a little bit more into the hypertrophy realm these days with a few of my posts. I've got some uh -oh. cool stuff coming up on that as well. Watch out. The day Joe Stanek takes over hypertrophy coaching on top of strength coaching is the day everyone else is in trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, watch out. You've been put on notice. <laughs> We're in trouble.